If you would, church family, stand with me for the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered about went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I remember whenever I was young, growing up, one of my favorite places to be. Uh, was at my grandparents' house. My grandparents owned, owned 20 acres out in uh, kind of between Boonville and Yankee Town, out in Warwick County. And that was like the greatest place in the world to be as a kid. They had all this land. It was, it was Memo and Papa, so you kind of got away with a bunch of stuff, got to do whatever you wanted to do. But one of the most fun things about being at my grandparents' house, uh, as I think back over my childhood, over my time spent there, I always loved... Anytime my papa was working in his garage, I wanted to go and be in his garage. It was always so much fun, largely because there was so much cool stuff in there for me to get in trouble with. I mean, there was everything from hammers, screwdrivers, chainsaws, you name it, he had it in his big pole barn garage. But one of the things about my papa's pole barn garage was that it was a straight mess, as long as I can remember, and that thing was built in my lifetime. It was like it was built, and he just like took all of his stuff and just like shook it out in the, in the garage, you know, where things are just laying out everywhere. There is like a workbench. There are like some, some, some toolboxes, but they're kind of irrelevant because everything is just covering everything. Tools everywhere, junk everywhere. It's so bad that as you walk in, and it was a constant complaint of my memos, that you'd walk into the garage and you would think, there's no way, there's no way that you know where it, anything is in this garage. There's no way. And yet what was absolutely amazing was that even after my papa had had his stroke, he was kind of uh, a lot more confined to being in the house. He wasn't able to get out to his garage as much. You could go up to him and say, do you have this tool or this piece or this sized nut or bolt and he would say, yeah, it's out in my garage. If you just pick up the old rags and, and move the, the welder to the side, and then like if you, if you skip through a few things, there you'll find whatever that thing is that you need. And without fail, you could go to his garage, follow his instructions to a T, and you would find whatever it is that you were looking for. To the outside observer, to the person who was just visiting the garage, you would look at that thing and think, this is chaos. There is no rhyme. There's no reason to any of this. And yet, for my papa, and in his mind, 
Everything had a place and everything was in its place. And he knew where everything was. So long as no one went in there and tried to clean it up, right? So long as no one went in there and tried to move his stuff around, he knew right where it was. Sometimes uh, kids' bedrooms get this way too, don't they? Looks like chaos, but they know where everything is. They have a system. My parents don't always like it, but there's a system there. I think about my, my papa's garage and just how to the outside observer, to us as kids, to my mama and everyone else in the family, the garage was chaos. There was no order. There was no meaning. It was just chaos. And yet, for my papa, who it was his garage, those were his tools, that was, those were his projects that were scattered all around, unfinished. He knew where everything was. Nothing was really out of order or out of its place, no matter how much it might seem that way to people who would come and visit his garage. I think about this, and even though it's, it's limiting, I think this helps us gain a picture of the sovereignty of God, and certainly the sovereignty of God from a human perspective. My title today, as you can see, is The Sovereignty of God and the Spread of the Gospel. And the point that I'm really going to emphasize here this morning is one that we hear often, and yet we can never hear enough. And it is that our God is sovereign, that he's sovereign over all things, and that his sovereignty extends beyond our comprehension or our understanding over all things. We think about the sovereignty of God, and sometimes, sometimes we limit God's sovereignty to what makes sense to us, don't we? We think, well, I know that God can make use of things. I know that God can kind of like correct course if things go wrong. But we sometimes fail to see that all that happens in this world is a part of God's sovereign plan. We even recall earlier in the book of Acts when, when Peter was preaching and he said that the Lord accomplished by the hands of wicked, lawless men everything that his hand and his plan predestined to take place. Think about this verse, Isaiah chapter 45, 6 through 7. And this speaks to the kind of sovereignty that our Lord had, has over his creation. The prophet Isaiah says in chapter 45, verses 6 and 7, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now we hear this, that the prophet Isaiah has just spoken. And it kind of hits us strange, doesn't it? That the Lord says, I make well-being and create calamity. To us, this sounds off-putting, right? Sounds distressing, especially when we consider in other places in the New Testament that says that the Lord does not do evil. But what we still see from the pages of Scripture is that though God does not commit evil acts, never does he solely his hands, yet he sovereignly ordains all that takes place. And as much as that can be a difficult doctrine for us to rationalize and wrap our heads around, in the end, as I hope we'll see today, it's a doctrine that's necessary for us if we are to have hope in this life. We ought to firmly have this doctrine established in our minds already. 
the doctrine of the complete and utter sovereignty of God. Especially for all that we've seen and heard in the book of Acts so far. How you could read the book of Acts and not see that God is sovereign over all things is beyond me. Yet, when we find ourselves in a place like we are here in the text, or maybe even in our own lives, it can be very easy for us to lose sight of the complete sovereignty of God. When we find ourselves the place, at the place where the church now finds themselves, what has just happened? Over the past few weeks, we've covered the life, or the, not the whole life, but certainly the last days of Stephen. Stephen, this one who had just been appointed by the church to serve the needs of the church, a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit, has now just been brutally murdered by this crowd. This was very much a difficult and dark time for the church. In the sense of Stephen, one of the, one of the great pillars of the church here in Jerusalem had just been brutally murdered. And to cap it off, to make it even worse, this brutal murder, the martyrdom of Stephen, the very first church martyr, started, sparked a persecution that would spread and spread and spread and intensify and intensify. Though Stephen was the first Christian martyr, he was by no means the last, was he? Rather, his death began something greater, something that was a persecution beyond what they had seen yet. It would be easy in these times, and we know when we face hard times in our life, it's very easy for us to forget about the sovereignty of God, or at least to think it somehow doesn't apply to the evil, to the wickedness, to the suffering that we might be facing. It's easy for us to throw up our hands and go, God has forsaken me. The devil has taken over complete control in this situation. God has lost it. But we know that that's not true. The Bible tells us clearly that's not true. But in these moments, it can be easy for us to forget that. So my main idea for today, if you would like to know what my main point is, it is this. Our God is a sovereign God who will use all that is under his dominion to accomplish the purposes that he has established. Our God is a sovereign God who will use all that is under his dominion, and that is all, right? Everything is under his control, his dominion. He will use all of it to accomplish the purposes that he has established. He turns trials into victory, suffering into joy. This is what our sovereign Lord does. And this main point is one that each and every one of us sits here and we know, we agree with, and yet it's one that we constantly need to be reminded of. This is what our God is in the business of doing, of turning trials into victory, suffering into joy. And it is beautifully portrayed in this passage. And it starts with Luke's closing comments about this man, Stephen. As we begin our chapter today, he starts by talking and closing the chapter on Stephen's life, this, the first martyr of the church. He says in verse 2, in these final remarks about Stephen, he says, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. What great final words to be said of a follower of Christ, right? 
to be said that, that men, not just any men, but devout men, buried him and made great lamentation over him speaks volumes both to the life of Stephen and his death and his witness, but also to what mattered to the church. We see here a great deal, even in this verse, that's spoken to us about Stephen and how he was viewed by other followers of Christ, by those who truly loved and obeyed and followed Christ. That they loved him and they mourned and they lamented his death. All of this despite the fact, consider this, they in a sense had reason to blame Stephen and his speech for the persecution that they were now facing and under. This is what sparked it. You recall Stephen's speech. He, hold, he held no punches back. He called out the Jewish religious leaders for their stiff-neckedness, their uncircumcised of heart. He held no punches. And we can imagine that there might be some who would be frustrated by this and say, you didn't have to say it like that, Stephen. You didn't have to be so forceful and so upfront about their sin and about their wickedness. Look what you've brought upon us, Stephen. We can understand that kind of mentality, couldn't we? But that's not what we see, at least from those who were the devout men. Those who were true followers of Christ, those who truly loved him, they did not get angry at Stephen. They were not frustrated by the work that he just did in order to bring persecution upon them, but they lamented. In fact, they made great lamentation over him. They mourned the loss of this great preacher of the gospel. And for them, it was a, a galvanizing moment for the church. It was a galvanizing moment, not just for the church, but for, for two different categories of people. The first person that it was a galvanizing moment for was this man named Saul. Point number two, we have now our introduction to Saul. Our introduction is found in chapter one at the very, or excuse me, verse one, the very beginning. And Saul approved of his execution. And we see again in verse three, a little more information about Saul as we are introduced to this man where Luke tells us, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison you see that but at the beginning of verse three this is right after verse two devout men buried stephen great made great lamentation over him but at the same time in another part of town we might say as these men were lamenting and mourning the loss of the spirit filled preacher of the gospel they were galvanized to what was coming for them but at the same time Saul was galvanized to make war against God's people we have a, a lot of discussions in our time about um, who is the greatest of all time it's the kind of conversation you'll hear in, in sports especially there's always the conversation of who's the goat and if you don't know what GOAT means, it's an acronym, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. Who's the GOAT in basketball or who's the GOAT, GOAT in golf or who's the GOAT in whatever the sport might be? 
Some people say Michael Jordan is the goat in basketball, the greatest of all time. I would say it's Larry Bird. But you know, to each their own. There's debate, right? Over who is the greatest golfer of all time, over who's the greatest quarterback of all time. But by and large, there is universal agreement that the Apostle Paul, who we are now introduced to as Saul, is the one who becomes the greatest theologian of all time, the goat, and probably the greatest evangelist that's ever lived either. But notice this, he didn't start that way. When we are first introduced to this guy, and mind you, this is the same guy that is going to write much of the New Testament. When we are first introduced to him, this is what we are given. Realistically, what is a proper name for this kind of individual? One who is targeting and aggressively hunting and persecuting and killing Christians? This man was a terrorist. There's no bones about it. That's what Saul was. He was a terrorist. His mission was to do everything he could to snuff out the gospel, whether by killing those who preached it or intimidating the rest. It was his mission to rid his land of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was doing it. The text uses this kind of language, says that he was ravaging the church. This term ravaging carries with it the idea of, a, of an animal like a bear or a lion shredding apart its prey, devouring it. If you've ever seen this on some sort of discovery channel or animal planet, of a, of a lion or a bear eating an animal, it's grotesque, isn't it? There is a ripping and a tearing apart of this animal. And that's what the term ravaging here has in mind. The idea of an animal of prey eating its prey. Saul is ravaging the church, seeking to rip it apart, eat it alive. Says that he was going from house to house, not just trying to find the places where they were worshiping, but hunting them down in their homes and dragging out men and women with no discrimination. You follow Jesus, you're done. And casting them into prison. This is Saul, the one who would come, the apostle Paul. And we can't help but read this and be amazed Amazed at the fact that this is the man whom the Lord is going to call and use to write much of the New Testament. Whom the Lord is going to use to reach the Gentiles with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The very gospel that he is now aggressively persecuting. Seeking to destroy. There are some who have suggested that it's a, a good and helpful practice to, to read the Bible at, at least at times as though you've never read it before. So you've never heard any of this, though you've never read it. And there might be some, some helpfulness in that practice, and that's fine. As though we could read it without actually knowing what's happening. But I think in this case, you miss something if you don't know what's coming for this man. Having the knowledge of who Saul becomes causes us, when we read this passage, to stand in awe. This passage hits a little bit differently, doesn't it? Because we know who this man becomes. 
because we know what God is going to do through this guy. This guy that right now is ripping the church to shreds, aggressively persecuting, dragging off men and women. Just picture that in your mind for a moment. It becomes then a little more understandable when the church is initially told, yeah, this guy Saul that used to persecute the church, yeah, he's our friend now. We're going to bring him on. And the council at first is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Saul? The Jewish guy? Hebrew of Hebrews? The one that studied under Gamaliel? That guy? Yeah. This hits a little bit differently when we know who this man becomes. And it hits differently because as we read this, in just one more way, we see God's sovereignty at work. We see his hand at work in the life of Saul. We know how God is going to use the Apostle Paul when he, when he converts him, when he draws him to himself, when he makes him a new creation. We know how he's going to be used. But what we see now, even though he's, an, in a sense, doesn't realize his participation, even now, the Lord is using Saul to accomplish his mission. He's using him as he aggressively persecutes the church, as he throws men and women out of their homes and into prison, as he approves of the murder of Stephen. God is using him. Now that we have Saul's character established, knowing sure enough who he's going to become, but right now we see who he is, we see the next character in our story as Luke introduces us to this man named Philip. Now, in a sense, we have already been introduced to Philip. At least we've been given his name. We know that he was one of the seven who were chosen to serve the church, to meet the needs of the congregation. Back in chapter 6, you remember that there were certain men who were appointed, who had good reputation, who were godly men, who were appointed to take on the task of meeting the needs of the of the people, especially the Hellenistic widows in the church, right? So we at least know that much about him, that he was a godly man. He was appointed by the church to this task. But we really begin to learn about who, who Philip is as we move now into verses 5 through verse 8. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Stephen here, I would argue, in our text, has essentially, or excuse me, Philip here in our text, has essentially become the new Stephen. He has taken up the mantle of what was begun by Stephen. And as Stephen, in his ministry, as he was preaching the word, was ultimately martyred for the faith, we see the acts, the, the work that he was doing carried on just the very next few verses after his death by this guy named Philip, who goes about into Samaria doing what? Not hanging out. Not just bringing, you know, aid in the form of, food and shelter, but preaching the gospel. For all the effort that Saul and the other Jewish leaders were putting into squashing the church and extinguishing the spread of the gospel, we see over and over and over again that it is a vain effort. 
that they cannot do anything to stop what God has chosen to accomplish. Indeed, it's been the case that with all their efforts, everything that they do to silence anyone who would speak in the name of Christ, all of it has served only to spread the gospel more. It served only to embolden the believers, to empower them, and to spread the church to the world. In verse 6, as Philip is preaching the gospel, we see that as the church is being persecuted and spread, it is being spread to a people who are hungry for the gospel. That's what we see in the Samaritans in verse 6. It says, In the crowds, with one accord, were paying attention to what was being said by Philip. The crowds with one accord, or some, past, some translations might say, as one man listened in unison and with a seriousness to what Philip was now proclaiming as they saw the works that were being done by him. As the Holy Spirit was moving and people were being healed and demons were being cast out, what did the people do? They paid attention to the gospel as it was proclaimed. Again, this reminds us and points us to the purpose of miracles, the purpose of signs and wonders, and that is to validate, to give credence to the message that is proclaimed as the gospel is preached. And here we see a people that are hungry for the gospel, that are ready to listen to what Philip has to say and receive it and all that comes with it. Philip is finding out that the harvest indeed is white and ready for reaping. The world is desperate for Christ and God is now sending his people to take him to the nations. This is what is happening in this text, right? If we learn nothing else about this text, what we can absolutely say is that the persecution that is being done by Saul and the Jews led directly to the spread of the gospel, directly to it. And look at the power of God that was being poured out as he preached. All these things are happening. Spirits are crying out and being cast out by those who had them. The paralyzed and the lame were being healed. What is this? The Samaritans are experiencing a foretaste of what the gospel brings. A foretaste of the healing and the joy and the freedom from bondage that the name of Christ produces. That he has accomplished for them. All of this is a foretaste. Here they see the reality of the gospel at work as it begins to move in them. And then point number four, sovereign God over all. We're going to look at a couple of the verses throughout this and see the sovereignty of God and just kind of stand in awe of it. Verse number one, the second half of verse one, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Right, so verse number one tells us there was great persecution. Verse three tells us what that persecution looked like, certainly. But from verse number one, we see there's great persecution and the people are spread. And then what does verse number four say? Now those who were scattered, those people who faced persecution and fled, right, left Jerusalem, went out into Judea and Samaria. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. 
And look at verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. These three verses alone picture for us the sovereign plan of God to use whatever means he so chooses to bring about his work and his purposes. That there was great persecution against the church, which led to the spread of the church. And as the church spread, the gospel and the word of God was preached. Unless you think that this preaching of the word that we see here in verse 4 is talking about what I'm doing right now, specifically preachers standing up at a pulpit, maybe doing some open air preaching, yelling so that everyone around can hear. Some of that very well was, was happening, certainly. As the churches were being established, the gospel was being preached the same way I'm preaching it here today. But actually, the word here that's translated into preaching carries with it more the idea of a conversation, of explaining the word of God, of explaining the gospel to those around them. In other words, all these people, these Christians, the church, as they were scattered into these various places, into these various cities, what were they doing? They didn't all go find a street corner with a megaphone to proclaim the gospel and to preach. They were around other people. And in conversation, what did they do? They explained the word of God to them. We can see how this might happen, right? Hey, welcome to Samaria. What's your name? Oh, well, it's nice to meet you. What brings you here? Oh, persecution. What's persecution? What does that mean? Jesus. Who's Jesus? You know? And just like that, the gospel was spreading. We sometimes think that that it's up to this kind of preaching in order to spread the gospel, right? That if we're going to be an effective evangelist or effective in our missions, then we have to be able to preach like, like Denton or Robert or Aaron. That's not the case. In fact, more often than not, people are going to come to faith in Christ through conversations with godly people. People who take the time to explain to them the gospel of Jesus Christ and show it to them and to display it to them in their lives. It's going to be coworkers, family members. If you look around you today here, there are not many people that have not been in this church before. And I'm just going to go ahead and break it to you. Our live stream doesn't have hundreds of people on it. People Uh, The lost people in Evansville are not hearing the gospel proclaimed today or this week or here in this town simply by our preaching on a Sunday morning. How are they going to hear it then? You can invite them and you should. We want them here. We want them to hear the word of God preached. But realistically, how are those people around us in Evansville, in Newburgh, in Mount Vernon, wherever we might be, how are they going to hear the gospel? It's going to be by people like you proclaiming the gospel to them, explaining it to them, having conversations with them about Jesus, explaining to them the hope that we have within us. This is what we are called to do. You don't have to be an effective public speaker. You don't have to have uh, all of the the catechisms that that we go through here in this church memorized in order to do this. You just have to be willing to tell people about the hope that you have. Why is it? that you know where you're going to go when you die? Why is it that you go every Sunday morning to this place when you could sleep in? Having these kinds of conversations is what is going to bring people 
to Christ. And it's what's going to grow the kingdom of God. It's what's going to expand the church. The will of God is seen every step of the way in this passage from verse 1 to verse 4 to verse 8. The point should never be thought, though, as we consider the sovereignty of God. Because what is God doing here? God has sovereignly ordained the persecution of the church. That's what has happened. The ravaging that Saul is now doing is a part of God's sovereign decree. He has willed it. He has decreed it. Does that mean then that God is behaving badly? That God is is committing wicked acts or is guilty of wicked acts? Absolutely not. Rather, what we ought to see is that God is so sovereign and so committed to his good purposes and to his glory that he sovereignly uses wickedness to bring about the greatest amount of glory for himself. That even the wickedness that he has ordained and that he has decreed, because all things that happen are part of his plan, do we need to remind ourselves of that, what Isaiah says? He says, I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light, create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. It is the Lord's will to do this. But it is his will to do this because there is a far greater purpose and a far greater glory for him that he has intended by this persecution. And this is really the way that we can have hope in this life, isn't it? It's by knowing that God has sovereignly ordained all things that take place, even the struggles, the persecution, and the suffering that we might face as believers. That God has ordained it, and that he is sovereign over it. What hope would there be if wickedness and evil was outside of God's sovereign plan? What hope would there be in that? What that would necessarily mean is that someone has figured out a way to go around God's will, go around God's plan to do something, to sort of do something outside of his will, and God is left to go, oh, I guess I better course correct here. I guess I better make a change and so the things work out. But that's not the way things work. God sovereignly uses human beings as human beings to bring about his purpose, to bring about all that he has ordained. And this gives us hope. It gives us hope when we suffer. It gives us hope when we might face persecution in this life because we know that all of it, in the same way it was the case for the early church, is for the sake of his glory. It's for his glory. The Lord sovereignly ordained to persecute his church that Saul would ravage the church. None of this caught the Lord by surprise. None of it did he have to react to. It was a part of his sovereignly ordained plan. The most basic and straightforward point of this text is that the persecution that Saul and the Jews inflicted on this church led directly to the widespread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a direct correlation. God used and ordained persecution to spread the gospel to the nations. What is our application of a text like this then? Because that is the point. That God sovereignly ordained that his church would be persecuted 
persecuted by Saul, but that it would cause the word to go out, that it would cause the gospel to go forth and the mission of God to be accomplished. But what do we do with this? I have for us two application points. One is a short one, but I think it's an important one. And that is that there is hope for the desperately lost. We can't just gloss over what we know to be true of Saul. What we know is going to become of him. No one in the church at this time was looking at Saul going, you know, I think this guy is apostle material. I think he's the one. That was not happening. They looked at Saul and they thought, this guy is our enemy. He hates, hates us and he hates Christ. And he was a scary dude. And yet, what do we know to be true? That this man became the apostle out of time, didn't he? He became the greatest evangelist that the New Testament has seen. He became the uh, author of much of the New Testament. He became the greatest theologian ever. So whoever this might be, whoever you have in your life that you might think it would be easy to give up on, that you might even at this point have written off that they would never know the gospel. They are too far. They are too hostile to it. I guarantee you, no one has been more hostile to Christ than Saul. Not a one. It, it pictures for us the, the truth that we know, that no one, no one is outside the reach of God's grace. No one is too far gone. Continue to pray for that church member. Continue to pray for that coworker. Continue to share the gospel with them. Do so knowing that they might hate you for it that they might never want to be around you, that it might make things really uncomfortable this Thanksgiving. But do it knowing that just like Saul, they are not too far gone for the gospel. The second point of application, I think is one of the most important from this passage. And that is that we ought to see in this passage a warning against the idolatry of comfort. Being a Christian in Acts chapter 8 was extremely, extremely uncomfortable. Painful, we could say. There was nothing easy about it. I think, and I look at Christianity today, at least in our context here in the West, and I think far too many people have idolized comfort. You know, I think about the, uh, the lazy boy recliner. This must have been like the invention of its time. I don't know when the lazy boy was invented, but I know that like to go from just sitting in a normal chair to turning a chair into a bed, that's a pretty cool improvement, right? And it's, it's like, I don't want to sit anywhere else but a lazy boy now. Lazy boys are so popular now, or we are so dedicated to our comfort that we're putting lazy boys in our theaters, right? Like you could literally go into a theater and like sleep. And I think a lot of people do probably. We are so committed to our comfort. And this is, I'm not, I'm not preaching against lazy boys. I've got three. I love them. I'm not preaching against, against the recliner. But what I am saying, and I am cautioning us against, is that we let our faith, our Christianity, become a kind of lazy boy Christianity. One that is so committed to comfort that we will take a normal chair and do everything we can to make it to where you can sleep comfortably in it. Because that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is not intended to be a lazy boy Christianity. 
But I worry about the church. And I worry about Redeemer Fellowship Church in this sense. About how much we love our comfort. How much we love not being put out of our comfort zone. Not being made to feel the weight or burden of what God has called us to. Because we are all prone to idolizing comfort. Passages like this drive me all the more to speak out against the false teaching of the prosperity gospel. A false teaching that is prevalent in our world today, even where we live here in Evansville. There are churches this morning that are preaching a kind of false gospel that says, you know what God wants for you? He wants you to be comfortable. He wants you to have money. He wants you to have wealth. And if you don't have it, it's probably your fault because God wants you to have it. He wants you to feel good. He wants you to be comfortable in this life. Could you imagine preaching that kind of gospel to the church in Acts chapter 8? What are you guys doing wrong? God wants you to be comfortable. It wouldn't make sense to them. Imagine preaching that kind of gospel to many who live in a Muslim context right now. Saying, well, yeah, God wants you to be comfortable and happy and, and healthy, right? Christianity isn't difficult. It's easy and it's fun. You'd be laughed out of the room of a church in a Muslim context or many places across the world if that was your message. And here's the thing that we need to recognize. If your version of the gospel only makes sense in your culture, then it's not the true gospel. And that kind of gospel only makes sense here, doesn't it? The kind of gospel that says God wants you to be comfortable. That makes no sense to much of the world today. The Lord is far more concerned about his glory than he is about your comfort. And that can be difficult for us to accept. Because we love to be comfortable. I love to be comfortable I don't like to be put in situations where when I proclaim the gospel, people think I'm weird or, or a bigot. And yet that's what it means to follow Christ in our context and in our culture. For a long time, Christians in the United States, we've enjoyed a great deal of comfort as Christians. And to this day, we still enjoy a great deal of comfort. It's not all that uncomfortable yet for us to be Christians here in the United States. But we would be unwise, in fact, we would be foolish to think that the kind of persecution found here in Acts chapter 8 could not happen to us. The question we really need to be asking is, what are we going to do when it does happen? I can think of no better encouragement to help believers in the face of persecution than what Peter says to the church in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. This is Peter riding to a church that's facing persecution and facing suffering. And you want to know what he exhorts them to do? Here's what he says in 1 Peter 1, 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not set it partially on that, partially on what you can gain in this world. Set your hope fully on these things. On the things that are eternal, not on the things that are temporary. 
Being a Christian church family is never depicted in the New Testament as easy. It never is. And that's clearly the case here in Acts chapter 8. And the more boldly Christians proclaim Christ, proclaim the gospel, the harder it's going to be. And the more uncomfortable it's going to get. But I'll say it again. You want to know how much the Lord is concerned about your comfort? About this much. About this much in comparison to how much he's concerned for his glory and his mission and the, and the faithfulness of his church. The question we need to ask ourselves is this. What are we willing to endure for the sake of the mission of God? For the sake of the glory of God? For us, it might just be as simple as being uncomfortable. Not even necessarily in pain, just uncomfortable. You know what's going to help us with this, though? With answering this question of how are we going to act when persecution comes? A reminder of the sovereignty of God. Right back to our main point. What's our main point? Our God is a sovereign God who will use all that is under his domain to accomplish the purposes that he has established. He turns trials into victories. He turns suffering into joy. It is by setting our minds and resolved firmly on this, the sovereignty of our God, that means even the suffering and persecution that we might face is for his glory and according to his purpose, and he is sovereign over it. It is that that will give us hope, that will give us joy as we set our hope fully on what is to come in Christ Jesus. Not in this life. John Piper, in preaching on this same text, said this. I'm just going to use his quote because I think it was great. He says, embracing the gospel sometimes brings persecution, but it always brings joy. Verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. A passage of text that we're looking at here today that begins with sorrow, begins with the death of Stephen and lamentation over him. What does it conclude with? Great joy in the city that the gospel has now been brought to. Persecution is sure to follow. But regardless of whether or not persecution comes, joy will come. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. To understand that, yes, persecution is going to come, and church family, persecution is going to come. The Bible promises us that. But even though being a Christian, embracing the gospel sometimes brings persecution, you know what it brings every time? It brings joy. It brings healing. It brings life where there is death. And so we can stand firm. We can stand resolved in the finished work of Christ, knowing that whatever might come in this life, it is only for a moment. It is only fleeting. And as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, it is creating for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we look not to the things that are seen, the things that are here on this earth, the things that are temporal, but we look to the things that are unseen, that are eternal. And that is where we find our hope. And that is where we find our joy. And that is the case no matter what might come in this life. Let's pray.